Hey guys, I'm Chris. Hey everybody, I'm Dorothy. My, my, Dorothy. Is that a deep voice? <laughs> Sorry, friend of. Friend of Dorothy, yes, that's right. <laughs> We're continuing our conversation on gateway horror, because that's what we do in November's now, right? Uh, last week we had a serious deep dive into The Wizard of Oz, where we hope that we covered some new ground for you guys. But now we're here for the true adjacent gateway horror spectacle that is return to us that's right we're finally making our way back to us one week later right but i do want to remind everyone please go back and listen to last week's episode because it really does cover a lot of the background that is setting up this movie all of the talk that we did last week i'm just not going to repeat myself about elfring baum because all of that conversation is vital to what we're going to be discussing this time around. That's right. And I'm sure that most of our listeners, a big chunk of them, must hold some sort of nostalgia boner in their hands for this movie, right? I feel like we all watched this in our formative years and we're probably a little terrified by it. I know that while watching this movie for this recording, my nostalgia boner was raging. I have a nostalgia boner shrinker for this movie. (laughs) Is that a fun fact? (laughs) No, I just did not fucking enjoy it. (laughs) I saw. I saw on Letterboxd. Let's get into it. Let's I rated it half a star lower than you. I I know hear that shit. I you know but I uh, you know we're gonna get into that because it almost was much higher than when I rated it. Well Return to Oz is a 1985 dark fantasy film Is it? Released by Walt Disney Pictures, co-written and directed by Walter Murch. It stars Nicole Williamson, Gene Marsh, Piper Laurie, rest in peace, and Feruza Balk as Dorothy Gale in her first big screen role. For all intents and purposes, the film is a sequel to the 1939 MGM film The Wizard of Oz and is based on Elfring Baum's earlier 20th century Oz novels, mainly The Marvelous Land of Oz, 1904, and Ozma of Oz from 1907. In the plot, an insomniac Dorothy returns to the Land of Oz to find that it has been conquered by the wicked Gnome King and his accomplice, Princess Mumby. Dorothy must restore Oz with her new friends, Belina the Chicken, TikTok, Jack Pumpkinhead, and the Gump. The Gump. Okay, listeners. We have always valued our lifelessness. I wonder if we could do that stupid chicken voice. Bow! This is Return to Oz. This summer, Walt Disney Pictures presents a motion picture fantasy adventure beyond your fondest imagination. You'll be transported miraculously back to the enchanted land of Oz, that magical kingdom beloved by young and old for generations. It's just a yellow brick. No, Belina, you don't understand. This was the yellow brick road. You'll share with Dorothy Gale the shock of finding everything mysteriously changed. What's happened to everybody? And you'll delight with her discovery of four wonderful new friends 
who band together against a wicked queen and the dreaded Gnome King. This is the Oz you haven't seen before, and this is the Oz you'll want to visit again and again. From Walt Disney Pictures comes a whole new world of entertainment. Why don't we just fly back to Kansas? Return to Oz. Six months after the tornado has ruined her home and farm, Dorothy Gale, played by Feruza Balk, is constantly going on and on and on about her time in Oz to her uncle Henry and Aunt Em, played by Piper Laurie. She's so obsessed with her fantasy world that she no longer sleeps much, and her family is worried for her. Not even trying to look sane, Dorothy talks to her chicken, Belina, one day, and finds a key with the word Oz on it. She runs to show Aunt Em, but instead is whisked away to see Dr. Whirly, who wants to shock her delusions away with his fancy electro-sanity machine. Before she can be shocked sane, the clinic loses power during a storm. Dorothy is saved by a strange girl, and the two run away into the storm, chased by the evil head nurse for the power trip. Kansas, seemingly, is fraught with natural disasters, and Dorothy is caught in a flash flood. She takes shelter in a chicken coop and wakes the next morning in Oz. In the coop with her is Belina, who can now talk and is a smartass. They carefully traverse some rocks across the deadly desert, which will turn anyone who touches it into sand, and they head off into Oz in search of Dorothy's fantastical friends. But she is noticed by a face in a rock, who quickly reports her presence to the mysterious Gnome King, played by Nicole Williamson, and warns him that she has a chicken. (laughs) Along the way, Dorothy comes across her old tornado-worn house and realizes the yellow brick road is now in a shambles. She races to the Emerald City, which is now also in a shambles, and all of its inhabitants turn to stone. She is chased by the Wheelers, a gang of hysterical ruffians with wheels for hands and feet, but uses her Oz key to open a wall when cornered. In the wall room, she finds TikTok, a mechanical man in Army of Oz. After she winds him back to life, he explains that he was instructed to wait for her by the Scarecrow, who was King of Oz, until the Gnome King destroyed the Emerald City and captured him. After a brief fight with the Wheelers, they are taken to the palace where Mombi, played by Jean Marsh, now resides. Mombi, a witch, has a collection of heads that she can wear, and she wants Dorothy's. She locks her in a tower to let her head ripen a little. In the tower, Dorothy meets Jack Pumpkinhead, who has, well, a pumpkin head. He tells her that he was created by his mother to frighten Mombi, but instead she animated him with her powder of life, which is stored in a cabinet with her original head. Dorothy devises a plan and instructs Jack and TikTok to create a creature made of a chaise lounge, fern fronds, and a gump's head, which is a moose-like creature. Dorothy steals the powder and turns the creature to life, who flies them to safety across the deadly desert with Mombi in hot pursuit. When the gump starts to fall apart mid-flight, he fortuitously crashes on the Gnome Keem's mountain, 
who captures them. He explains that he has turned the scarecrow into a piece of bric-a-brac, but proposes a game. The group will go into his tchotchke room, where they will touch three random objects while saying the word Oz. If they are touching the one that is the scarecrow, he will be restored and they will be free. Show me on this tchotchke where he touched you. (laughs) (laughs) So many tchotchkes. You must be someone important. Like an astronaut or a cowgirl. One by one, the group chooses poorly and they become knickknacks. While alone together, the Gnome King shows Dorothy that he is now the owner of the ruby slippers, and he just looks darling in them. While choosing, TikTok appears to have wound down, but it's a ruse to help Dorothy choose correctly, which she does after blindly choosing an emerald, which honestly should have been the first thing anyone thought of. Dorothy begins to free her friends from their bric traps. With only TikTok left to find, the angered Gnome King stops the game. He eats the gump's chaise and starts to drop Jack into his mouth. But Belina has been hiding in his head and has laid an egg, which falls into the Gnome King's throat. He exclaims that eggs are poison to gnomes, and he and his minion begin to crumble, thus continuing Oz's tradition of being able to kill enemies with simple items and no fuss. Dorothy reclaims the ruby slippers and wishes her and her gang back to Oz and the Emerald City back to its original glory. TikTok is dechotchkeyed, Mombi is imprisoned, and the group is celebrated by the citizens of the city who asked Dorothy to be their queen. She refuses and says she must return to Kansas, but before she can, everyone sees a strange reflection. It's Ozma, the rightful queen of Oz. Dorothy helps her escape the mirror and tearfully says goodbye to her friends, new and old, while traveling back to Kansas. She awakens outside, appearing to have survived during the storm. The clinic has burned to the ground and the doctor has died. Sometime later, the farm is closer to being rebuilt, and Dorothy is closer with her family. She sees Ozma and Belina in her mirror, but hides them from Aunt Em, keeping her fantasy friends a secret, but secure, knowing she can see them anytime. The end. Yes. Where the fuck was Glinda? <laughs> Where the fuck was Glinda? <laughs> That's a really good question. Why have I never thought about this? <laughs> Maybe she died six months later. In that fire. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe she's one of the Oh heads. my god, she was the Gnome King. <laughs> Probably. Holy shit. That all makes sense. Got all the enemies out of the way in the first movie. Mm-hmm. With simple objects. Water, eggs, whatever the fuck. Things you can get at the Piggly Wiggly. <laughs> Return to Oz was released on June 21st, 1985. It grossed almost 3 million opening weekends, securing the number 7 spot of the Piggly Wiggly. <laughs> Sorry. Other films of the top 10 that weekend included Cocoon, The Goonies, and A View to Kill. I like the way you say Cocoon. Return to Oz would quickly fall out of the top 10 by its third week in release. The film would ultimately gross $11.1 million against a budget of $28 million. Disney had spent $6 million on advertising, including a float in the Disneyland Main Street Electric Parade. Some theaters reported that it would only bring in about $400 a week, with one theater manager saying that Disney should have released the movie when people had nothing to do. (laughs) It was largely considered a flop. 
Return to Oz holds a 58% on Rotten Tomatoes, with an audience score at 71%, slightly different from last week's movie. Yeah. The site's consensus reads, quote, Return to Oz taps into the darker side of Elfring Baum's book series with an intermittently dazzling adventure that never quite recaptures the magic of its classic predecessor. Hmm. That's true. Those who were familiar with the Oz books praised its faithfulness to the source material of L. Frank Baum, such as author and critic Harlan Ellison, who said, quote, It ain't Julie Garland. It ain't hip-hop. But it's in the tradition of the original Oz books. Spoken like only an old white man would wow. say things. <clears throat> I don't even understand that quote, but I had to include it because he's an idiot. However, many critics described its tone and overall content as slightly too dark and intense for young children. Quote, children are sure to be startled by its bleakness, said the New York Times' Janet Maslin. Ian Nathan of Empire gave the film three out of five stars, saying this is not so much a sequel, but an homage and not a good one. Canadian film critic Jay Scott felt the protagonists were too creepy and weird for viewers to relate or sympathize with. He said... Dorothy's friends are as weird as her enemies, which is faithful to the original Oz book, but turns out not to be a virtue on film, where the eerie has a tendency to remain eerie, no matter how often we're told it's not. It's bleak, creepy, and occasionally terrifying, added Dave Kerr of the Chicago Reader. Neil Gaiman reviewed Return to Oz for Imagine magazine and stated that, quote, terrifying and visionary, funny and exciting, Return to Oz is one of the very best fantasy films I've ever seen, end quote. By the time of the film's release, the only surviving cast member from 1939 was Ray Bulger, who said in an interview that although he had no desire to watch the film, he noted that, quote, if a beautiful young lady is Dorothy and what I've seen of the film, it looks intriguing. And might be interesting for today's young people to see another version of the story. Well, how diplomatic, Ray Bulger. It does have some accolades. Um, well, sort of. At the Saturn Awards, it was nominated for Best Fantasy Film, but it lost to Lady Hawk. I still haven't seen that. It's, it's good. Uh, it was also nominated for Best Performance by a Younger Actor. But and it lost to uh, the other guy from... Fucking never any story. I know, but it was for the movie Daryl. Yeah. Know, which yeah. I've never seen. Which I also like. I love Daryl. <clears throat> it was also nominated for Best Costumes. At the Academy Awards, it was nominated for Best Visual Effects, but lost to Cocoon. Cocoon? How do you say uh, Cocoon? Cocoon. And why did you say you liked the way I said Cocoon? Because <laughs> it's the way I say it. I don't know. Oh. <laughs> but I did not know this, so we could say now forever, Academy Award nominee, Return to Oz. That's right. That's what I'm going <laughs> to say. <laughs> for sure uh this this movie definitely has a cast uh obviously we've already mentioned even as far back as last episode um for as mm-hmm. uh dorothy gale and of course we know her from the craft and of course most notably the water boy <laughs> <laughs> bobby boucher and american history x yeah right? um actually i don't think we actually talked about her at all last week i think that was an offline conversation no, I think we did mention her at some point in the, as a joke in passing. But it was an inside joke that we made. So I don't know, people need to be present for. We our bind lives. you, Dorothy. <laughs> <laughs> we bind you from doing harm against the Gnome King, which was played by Nicole Williamson. Uh, he was in Spawn as Spawn's kind of like mentor, and then of course Merlin in Excalibur. Yep. 
he doesn't quite to do get to do as much of his normally kind of Shakespearean bit that he normally does, but he does get to do some eccentric and interesting varied things as the Gnome King and Dr. J.B. Worley in this movie. He's got a very distinctive voice, doesn't That's, he? Yeah, he does, but mostly in like, for sure, in Excalibur and Spawn. Yeah. But in this, he's much more American sounding, yes. right? He's doing an American accent, which is just, you know, doesn't sound as good. Well, I think it's just like, it's the tone of his voice, right? The timbre, and yet as still some might say. largely forgettable. Speaking, <laughs> <laughs> we've got Jean Marsh, who I remember being terrified of in Willow as the the queen sorceress, yeah. which whoever she was, uh, and quite scary in that. Um, versus the nurse in this, wearing a very similar outfit to the Wicked Witch of the West, if you noticed, mm-hmm. and then obviously Mombi or Princess Mombi, which I'll never understand. In the actual um, Land of Oz. Now, uh, she's got a number of different actresses playing her, so she didn't get all the credit. Sophie Ward played Mommy 2, and Fiona Victory played Mommy 3. But Jean Marsh is supposed to be like the main villainous version right. of this character. And she does a great job. I think so, too. I mean, like, as, as far much as she can, you know. <clears throat> With what she's given. She's not in the movie a shit ton. But no, like, she's not. And I thought I remembered her being, like, the main person. But there is really no main bad guy as far as like runtime in this movie no which and i'm sure we'll talk about this at some point this movie has a very quick runtime it kind of does like things move along at a pretty fast clip it's very very slow until it's not uh (laughs) yes exactly exactly like i was watching this last night and i was just like well this is kind of slow for a children's movie but i mean it is until until it's not and then everything happens but g marsh is really good in this she has a really evil looking presence i also remember her from willow she does and i like the ambiguity of the beginning when she's kind of like drowning in the river dorothy is and mm-hmm. she's like trying to go like get her right and she you could see this like look of concern and you know as an adult that she's actually concerned yes you know versus from dorothy's perspective it looks like she's trying to come get her you know like anyway i think it could go either way the though. ambiguity is built yeah. in intentionally is what i'm trying to say well i think that her concern could also be for herself you know what i mean i feel like yeah. as mombi and the nurse she's very self-serving she's like i'm gonna throw myself through all these thorns and get a little wet and like dash myself against the rocks a little bit but i'm not going to completely drown myself to go get you dorothy especially since it looks like you got onto a raft no she she like walks into the little like flash flood river and stands there and yeah. she's like no don't don't get in the water stop <laughs> swim back you know and that's it i mean she's mean it's like gene wilder <laughs> No, stop, don't. <laughs> Willy Wonka. She, yeah. she Willy Wonka's the fuck out of that rescue. And uh, like, why is she imprisoned at the end? The nurse, not Mombi. Mombi's obviously very evil. But what is, like, is it just because she's bad? I have no idea. I think that's just the carriage. It looked like a prison. It's like, she, there were bars and shit. Well, she that. wasn't... St- I think only because you were looking at the standing prison that she was in in Oz versus that was a carriage and she was looking at the back of the carriage. But it literally did. It was made to look like Like she had been arrested. Yes, it was made to look like that. I mean, obviously, the doctor was bad. And they talked about like because Dorothy was like, what are those sounds? Are those people screaming? And they're like, oh, it's the people they fucked up that live in the basement. So I'm like, well, she obviously have done something. She was culpable in something. I don't know. I think you're taking. I think you're you're seeing this through the the lens of your nostalgia boner. Already, yes. I know. Yeah. And what I mean by that is you're looking at it through the eyes of Dorothy more than you are like an audience member looking at it at the age of forty plus. You know. 
That's true, because I kind of watched this movie. Like, once the movie started, I felt like I was, like, I six again. definitely felt that way watching yeah. it as a kid. And I probably, and I think I did, you know. But as an adult, mm. I, I, I'm viewing things more, you know, am, ambiguously as, like, the director may, may have intended for the general audience versus, like, the children audience. That's true. Anyway... That's what it is. Subjective, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Piper Laurie, rest in peace. Uh, as Aunt M, strangely, I thought she probably would have been a better mommy in a way. Hell yeah. Uh, of course, she was in Carrie as Carrie's mom and, of course, Twin Peaks. That's right. And other things. I mean, like, she was also and in. other things as well. And other films as well. We've talked about Piper Laurie many times on the podcast, including with the faculty. Like, Piper oh, Laurie right. comes up. When we watch movies, and I always love Piper Laurie. I, I love her do. name, Piper mm-hmm. Laurie. Piper Laurie. Mm-hmm. And it's so sing songy, right? Yes. I don't know. She just looks like someone that I'm both like afraid of and want to be comforted by. It just depends on the role. She does everything so well. It was interesting because I feel like Jean Marsh has a face and a voice and an, and kind of a tone in this film that actually kind of matches, in a way, um, and him from the first film, right? A little bit stern. But also capable of, of some moments of, you know, comfort versus I feel like uh, that comes very, very naturally to Piper Laurie. But Piper Laurie has a talent for yeah. getting into some very interesting and elevated villainous spaces with her voice and timbre. For sure. I also feel like Jean Marsh as Mombi, like original head Mombi. G. Marsh said, obviously, um, is looks kind of similar to the way that Margaret White does a little bit. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's all kind of just the, the styling of the day. Oh, that's true. I guess it was a time period thing. Yeah. 70s and 80s. That's right. Yeah. Although this movie takes place in like 1899. But sure. They had crimpers back then. Yeah. <laughs> it was the first thing that people invented once they found electricity was a way to crimp hair. Yeah, I almost want to say the original Wizard of Oz, in a way, looks more timeless. Uh, yes. And styled. Yeah. Most definitely. Definitely. So let's talk about the development of this thing, shall we? Yeah, because I, I think it's pretty storied, right? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, not as much as you, you might think or remember. Uh, Walter Murch began development of Return to Oz in 1980 during a brainstorming session with Walt Disney Productions production chief Tom Wilhite. Merch told Wilhite he was interested in making an Oz film, and Wilhite kind of straightened up in his chair when he heard that. And unbeknownst to Merch, Disney actually owned the rights to Oz series and wanted to make a new film as the copyright was soon to expire. Oh. Yeah. So I want to back up a little bit so we could talk a little bit about Malter Merch. Okay. Because this sounds is going to sound very random to people, right? I feel like Walter Merch is not a very known person to... Your house, your average household. I had to look him up after watching this movie. <laughs> you did? Uh, yeah. I'm not surprised. So Walter Scott Murch was born in July 12th, 1943. I'm fast forward a little bit. He's an American film editor, director, writer, and sound designer. So he has a career stretching back to 1969, including work on THX 1138, which wow. is, of course, George Lucas's kind of magnum opus student film that... Uh, it's still a classic. Um, Apocalypse Now, The Godfather 1, 2, and 3, oh. American Graffiti. So these directors should kind of be a little reminiscent there. The they Conversation, yep. Ghost, The English Patient, and he has uh, three Academy Award wins from nine nominations, six for picture editing and three for sound mixing. 
So obviously based on those first movies like THX and uh, Apocalypse Now and Godfather series, all those American graffiti, obviously a frequent early collaborator with Coppola and his protege, George Lucas. That's right. Although I'm not seeing any Star Wars credits, which is interesting here because this guy is seen at this point in, in his career as one of the most competent and intelligent men in Hollywood considered by many to be kind of a technical polymath, kind of how James Cameron might be viewed today mm-hmm. or, you know, at some point, you know, but this guy, um, less of a showman, right? He invented things for sound. Um, I mean, he basically invented the Oscar for sound as far as I know, um, you know, maybe with like the understanding of uh, people's understanding of the complexity of the sound with the conversation, right? A very important film to this day. Uh, and editing and of course he invented things uh, to, to support sound effects and and editing as well and editing techniques and so I feel like if that guy comes forward who is kind of you want to you almost want to say like a filmmaker's filmmaker right not really known colloquially or <laughs> household but is kind of known within the business especially with the new crop of directors coming up in the 70s and 80s 60s 70s 80s with uh, Coppola and and, and Lucas yeah with his cred and having just come off of you know the conversation with oscar wins and everything disney's going to listen very very closely when he says hey i'm very passionate about this i have a script and a story and i want to do it right and so of course they'd follow his lead because i was questioning like why are they not giving this to spielberg why are they not giving this to lucas you know uh at this point uh, why, why are like a relative unknown directing this picture? You know, why, why are they not trusting this to some of the biggest names back then? Because this is a sequel to one of the most iconic films of all time. Well, I think that answers the question. Exactly. Right there. I mean, mm-hmm. like, I feel like by the time this movie was made, Spielberg was Spielberg, Lucas was Lucas. And then everyone else from that whole like gang of filmmakers. Right. I mean, like Coppola, I think we can put like De Palma in that group as well. Well, I mean, um, Lucas literally was a student of Coppola. Correct. And that's why I say his, prote- his protege. And that crop. Yeah, for sure. But these people, like, it's a ballsy move to want to touch a movie like The Wizard of Oz. Oh, yeah. You know? Especially because by the time that, you know, this this film had rolled around, that was a yearly annual kind of TV event that yeah. people still celebrated. And making a movie that's going to be a sequel to that is, is difficult in its own, but can you imagine like MGM probably wouldn't want to have a sequel to that movie. Otherwise they would have made it by mm. then, you know? Yeah. So it's kind of ballsy. Well, they had the rights. Exactly. Yeah. I'm just trying to drive this home that Walter Murch was kind of a trusted technical figure. Yeah. If anyone's going to be able to pull this off via sound and editing, at least from that and from being a part of amazing productions before that, this was the guy. And he also had references like, Francis Ford Coppola and George Lucas coming up in his corner and being like, yeah, we'll be references. And later on, you'll see they had a bigger part to play as well. Well, good. And I mean, I can totally see what you're saying here. I mean, like, obviously if someone came into a room with this kind of like, he had no director credit. It was his first film. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But I mean, having worked on all these other movies, like from a technical standpoint, like I could see how that would be very trustworthy. And also if you have the rights already to this, then why would you not do it? It was right place, right time. Yeah. You know, the right person had a conversation with the right person at Disney at the right time when they were already saying we need to do something before we lose copyright. Right? Because they were going to let it slide if they just couldn't find anything to do with it. 
That's what I was going to say because they're going to lose the copyright. So yeah, I'm sure so I was right. right person, right time. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So in September 1981, Disney president Ron Miller announced that the studio would be making the film not as a sequel or a continuation of the 1939 movie, but instead an entirely new story with a different look to the original film as to not compete with it. Of course, it ended up being a sequel anyway. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day. Yeah. So merch took a darker take obviously on on the source material uh than the 1939 adaption which is you know just the take <laughs> per our conversation about it last week please tune into that yeah uh which he knew would be a gamble right it's a little bit darker it's not as, as popcorn it's certainly not a musical this time around nope uh so between the development period and actual shooting there was a, a change of leadership at walt disney studios with will height replaced by richard Berger, and the film's budget actually increased so despite the original 20 million budget this eventually rose to $28 million, which in that time is a lot more. Yeah, that's a pretty big budget for a film in 1985. Yeah, right? I mean, they basically just boosted it, you know, another 10%, 50%, sorry. Yeah. For, for a company that used to make lots and lots of live-action movies, I feel like by the, you know, the time like 1985 rolled around, there were far fewer live-action Disney films than there were in like the 70s, 60s, and like before that. Like they were slowly moving into more of an animation company and then like putting a lot of their time in like the channel. Right. Well, it kind of, yeah, because they'd have to, I guess, you know, they didn't have their Renaissance until 1989's a little mermaid. Right. I would say, because this didn't help them at all. And what came out the same fucking year? The black holder. Yeah. <laughs> which, which was kind of which, super dark movie too. Yes. Yes. Right. So anyway, the film was developed and produced without the involvement of MGM uh, which, of course, did the, the 1939 film. So no approval was actually necessary because by 1985, theoretically, the Oz books in which this were based were in public domain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the subsequent Oz books had already been optioned to Disney many years earlier, which is why they wanted to use them. Now, I thought copyright didn't go into public domain for 100 years. That's what I have always. I it was like an arbitrary, which would mean 2000. The year 2000 would have been when it, at least the first one. Was it, is that when it came out? And then the second and third would have been like 2003, 2004. Yeah. It should be. I mean, that's how I've lived my entire life. Thinking 100 years, things are like in public domain, squarely. But Winnie the Pooh just hit the public domain. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. Uh, I know they option the right, so it doesn't matter if it was public domain or not. But um, I have no, I have no idea, honestly. We would need some sort of like, Someone needs to be fact-checked here. To answer that question. Yeah, I don't know. We need a lawyer. We need need a patent. We need a patent attorney right now. Yeah. Um, Right. So Fruza Balk was one of 600 girls from Vancouver chosen to audition for the role of Dorothy. And that's just Vancouver because over a thousand children from other cities were chosen to audition. And Balk was the second youngest of all, all of them. Wow. So Merch said that he, quote, wanted to find somebody who might be Judy Garland's cousin once removed. As Lansky believed Balk was born to play the role, saying, quote, she is Dorothy, as described by Baum. She is also Dorothy, as I think Judy Garland would have loved to play her if she were that age. Okay. It's kind of an interesting thing to say. Well, and I kind of feel like from a director's standpoint, she may have been like instructor. Maybe she just did this on her own if she was like old enough to like consider that. But she, she says some lines in ways that there's Judy Garland kind of does. There's one particular line where it's kind of in that scram, bad eh? kind of yeah or whatever. And uh, she's like, you don't understand, Belina. This is the Olympic row. <laughs> yeah, it's very that's probably the, the, the moment. Yeah. So I'm watching this and I'm just like, <gasps> like she sounds like Judy Garland just then. I was like, what are you doing? Scram. 
Yeah. It's Grand Yeah. She had like <laughs> a 1930s kind of way of, of saying it. She, she had a very 30s Sam Lido. Filming started in February of 1984 and production quickly started to run bet- behind schedule. Uh, Balk and Ridley, the only two child actors on set, had limited working hours per day. Balk, who was in about 98% of all the scenes, was yeah. permitted to work no more than three and a half hours a day. Oh, God. Restricted to between 9.30 a.m. and 4.30 p.m., which included breaks and private educational tuitions. So between that and Murch's slow progress as a technical director, slowed down filming considerably. Maybe that's why this movie looks so bright. Everything was shot during the day. It had to. Yeah. I mean, I well, does it look bright, though? <laughs> kind of looks drab. I don't, there are some moments when they're outside, and I was just like, this entire movie is shot in the daytime. This and movie looks outside. like Schindler's fucking list. <laughs> <laughs> I would not go that far. <laughs> so, uh, five weeks into production, Disney was not happy with that footage. And uh, by then, most of the, the Kansas scenes had been shot, but only the Kansas scenes had been shot. So, Merch was looking unwell at that time because it was extremely cold and he was being overworked and he was overworking himself mm-hmm. and he was fired <gasps> as a director without protestation. He didn't complain uh, because he later recalled that experience and said, quote, had I fought back, they might've said, okay, but I couldn't fight back. I felt what the soul feels after it's left its body after a car accident, pain, but tremendous relief. Oh my God. <laughs> How terrible was this That's experience? just after five weeks. <laughs> five weeks is a long time for shooting it can be i mean like what what's the movie that we just saw that was only done in like 28 days yeah um everything everywhere all at once yes like that was shot really quickly i feel like a lot of movies we talked about in the podcast are shot this was like february to october so this was months and months of shooting that's crazy i mean i'm obviously we talk about a lot of like independent films on this podcast but like five weeks seems like a very long time I get it could be, but that's basically just Kansas, but most of it. And so that's five weeks and it's only five weeks. So they were very limited by the child actors and how much they could shoot. And then they were just like doing pickups and other things, I'd guess, and then trying to get photography down. And so it was also very, very cold at that point in February for some reason. And uh, yeah, middle of the country. I don't know where they're actually filming. Mm. Uh, No, they were filming in fucking England. Yeah, they were filming in England in winter. <laughs> Why the hell were they in Vancouver looking for child actors? I don't know. Oh my god, it's just weird. one of the one of the cities. Is what I'm saying. All right. Well, I feel like my soul might leave my body if I don't open this seltzer. Okay. So high-profile filmmakers, including George Lucas and Francis Ford Coppola, supported Merch in discussions with the studio, and Merch was reinstated and finished the film. Lucas himself guaranteed that he would step in as a replacement if any further problems emerged. Oh, they were looking after their little boy. Yes, they were. Had they hired another director after they fired him or like things were just in limbo at that point? I guess they were just like, this sucks. You're taking time. Like his, uh, I think it's a fun fact later, but like their, their cameraman quit. Shit. Like he was really upset. Like, so people were quitting. Because things were getting delayed. Things were moving too slowly. They were out. They were on location for all day, every day for five weeks and nothing was getting done, really. That's what it felt like. Well, and these and people were line of freezing to death. <laughs> like they have to jump from one project to another. You know what I mean? Like some of yeah. these people have to like work really, really quickly. And there are a lot of people on set aside from people who like operate the camera and whatnot. Like, 
Well, they obviously got into a cadence, right? Because it wasn't really until the end of the film uh, where they, I guess they mostly shot it in order in a way. Um, Mm -hmm. But the uh, Emerald City scenes towards the end of the film had to be completely reshot as the the character Ozma was originally dressed in a gold lace dress, which was deemed unsuitable during post-production. So the scenes were reshot with the actress wearing a white and green dress described by uh, the actress Ridley as being quote, very itchy and very uncomfortable because she had grown by the time filming had taken place. Uh, at one point during the film, the filming, the scenes bulk, she's on the, the back of the, of the lion. Yeah. Uh, in that final scene, she actually passed out because the, the onset temperature was like over a hundred degrees. Oh, it was starting to mirror the actual wizard of Oz. <laughs> yes. <set> then. <laughs> oh my gosh. So they had to redo the whole thing because she wasn't wearing the right dress. Like doesn't, that doesn't make sense to me. Something else like, just might've just not worked. I guess. You know, like, it seems like they were just trying to spend money. To me, I feel like they should have reached out the whole thing anyway, again, because the Emerald City didn't look fucking emerald. No. Like, nobody was wearing... Uh, some people had green on. There was some green accoutrement or yeah, whatever. Yeah, but people like, were walking around in red. I was like, what the fuck going on? The city on? itself has, like, a silhouette of green, I guess, maybe, but it's like... Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I mean, like, if you think about the original Wizard of Oz, it's so easy to make it look even a little bit reminiscent of the original Emerald City. Maybe they were just trying to get far, far away from anything that MGM had done. You know what I mean? Because in the original Wizard of Oz, literally everybody is dressed in green. It's like the only color known to that city. I, you know, it almost feels like this director really loved the books. Yeah. And then felt some sort of way about yeah. the way the original was was filmed kind of adversely to the to the the tone of the books obviously per our discussion mm-hmm. last week that's right i mean it really does seem that way that he yeah. was just like no like source material first so it's like it's a better adaptation but a worse movie <laughs> you know i mean granted yeah so speaking of which you know there's some really good things about this movie and some really kind of interesting decisions whether they're good aesthetically or not. Um, so when we talk about the look and the feel of this movie, um, this film was shot by cinematographer David Watkin, who actually had won an Oscar for Out of Africa. That same year, right? And so I'm wondering, because like this, like I said, this movie to me looks kind of like they added silver to the film, like Alien um, Resurrection or something, or, mm-hmm. or a, a, a Fincher film. Right, seven. It looks like not just in, in Kansas, but in Oz, they had like bleached out some of the colors. Well, and I feel like they would do that purposely for the story or the plot of the movie. But why both? Like, the, it really, really worked well in the first film as to far as, contrast. like, and in the books. The books say that about Kansas. Mm-hmm. And the Oz is very colorful in, in contrast to it. They didn't do that here. This is the only failure of adaption, in my in my view. It's like they could have easily done black and white or sepia or just done that drab coloring from the beginning of the film and copied it and then just up to the fucking saturation. I don't fucking know. For... Uh, for Oz itself, because it they look kind of like they were the same place. This one has fancy buildings and creepy Muppets. <laughs> this might be a little too like into it, but I feel like it should mirror Kansas in kind of a way. Oh yeah, no, I, I think I see where you're going here. I just I really like the contrast. You know, like this is the dream world. This is the surreal world. This is the funhouse mirror version versus you know, it would have been something. It was almost just like a middle finger. To the original, and that's something the the original I feel really actually got right about one of the few things it got right about the adaption. This gets many, many things right with the adaption. This is not one of them. It's weird. I don't know. I mean, I I still think that it's I, I think it's good. I think he made the right choice with this because like 
Oz in the first movie, it's it's our first introduction, and she gets there, and everything is very Oz-like. She she returns to Oz, right? And everything is wrong with it, right? Things are wrong at home. Things are wrong in Oz. This this movie and her trip to Oz seems to mirror her life in Kansas when the original one was a complete opposite, right? Yeah, it's almost like she's grown up a little bit. And it's only been six months, though. It's like I almost would have appreciated that more if she had aged like 10 years. Yes. Coming back and seeing that that much time had passed. It almost feels um, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe-y mm-hmm. a little bit where time moves differently in the different worlds, right? Like the kids, the Pevensey kids go back you know, like a year later and it's been like 700 years or a thousand years. And it almost looks like that way now. It looks like it's been a couple of hundred years at least with exactly. the, the, the yellow brick road looks. I, I feel like time moves differently in Oz. It yeah. must, you know? The thing is, is that she she wants to get back there so badly. And it's such a contrast to her wanting to leave Oz so badly in the first movie. She's like, her, she constantly wanted to get home. And then she she gets home, things aren't great, right? Yeah. And then she constantly wants to go back. And she gets to Oz, things aren't great. And it takes that that weird, like, things aren't good anywhere kind of mentality to yeah. want to go back and fix the life that is yours to begin with. So I feel like the way that this movie looks kind of mirrors that a lot. Yeah, I feel it does like this, get brighter by the end, by the yeah. very, very end. I feel like this movie mirrors a lot more of, like, what Dorothy is going through at home more than the original movie does. Yeah, it, sh- it shares the same concept of having characters play two things because clearly it's a dream for this child or whatnot. But I feel like this movie talks about, like you said earlier, like age and growing older and becoming a young adult yeah. in ways that the original doesn't really do. I think that's, that would be a really good visual motif for that uh, and a theme for that if she had been, if she had actually aged, but it had only been six months. Yeah. And also she looks younger in this one than she does in the original movie. Yeah. yeah. And so it doesn't really quite work for me. Mm either way but i can definitely see your point yeah i just i mean and bonar aside i like i think it's i I think it's kind of spot on when it comes to like symbolism of things right imagery is symbolism so the music was done by david shire who had done the conversation at apocalypse now weird although Hmm. that was a rejected score what is going on with those rejected scores uh, for Apocalypse Now? He also did Short Circuit, and randomly, he ended up doing Zodiac for Fincher. Ooh, I love Zodiac. It's now a name we've said twice in this episode. That's right. And Short Circuit. Oh my god, I haven't seen that movie in so long. Talk about boners. Yeah, and I just don't. That was not a household name. I was like, I'm a, a film score buff, and I I wasn't really super aware of the name David Shire. I've never heard it. But this is a hugely eccentric and varied score. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's organs and violins and synthesizer and like fucking oompa and harpsichord <laughs> everything's going on in the score it's not the, the best score in the world um there's some weird music editing in my opinion some like off off kilter music for certain scenes but uh listening to it in isolation it's a huge uh accomplishment hearing just like the the multi-instrumentalist just like the textured layers of music that's going on I feel like the only piece of music that I recognized on this rewatch was like the TikTok theme, right? I mean, because like that kind of stuck in my head when I was younger. It's kind of recognizable. It still is now, but I mean, the TikTok theme. What? Do be do be do be do be do be do be do. No, whatever TikTok is. I wake up in the morning with the bottle of Jack. I don't Kesha. No. Um, well, it sounds like it sounds like old military or tired yeah. military. You know what I mean? Yeah, sure. Yeah, there's some there's some. Uh, I really like the organ pieces that, that that's going on in here, like with the horror. 
you know, there's some really interesting stuff going on. It's very, very uh, eclectic. Yes, that is the word. Yeah. And anytime I hear a harpsichord, I'm very happy with it. I love a harpsichord. (laughs) And then we have the Muppetry. The Muppetry of it all. Which is interesting because I was really interested to see, like, maybe maybe I missed it in the the credits, you know, but I'm not seeing, like, Industrial Light and Magic. I'm not seeing the Henson Company. You know, I'm seeing Brian Henson, who, of course, is a son of Jim Henson. Mm -hmm. Um, He also played Jack Pumpkinhead. Um, but he was hired along with a few other select members from, you know, the Henson company. And from what I can tell, this was an ad hoc crew from Jim Henson and, and probably industrial light and magic. Yeah. I Just mean, from his context, I think he hand selected his team to do this. Probably. And, and, and to and not hire a production so. company, like a special effects company, as far as I know. But I mean, like, even with that being said, these characters are super fucking Muppety. Like Jack Pumpkinhead, the yeah. Gump itself, I think is, is super Muppety. Even TikTok to a point is kind of Muppety looking. They're they're much closer to the original early like 19th or late 19th century drawings of uh, the lion and the, the scarecrow and the Tin Man, which were just kind of brought to life in this way and made into kind of an animatronic puppet much closer to the original vision of like those illustrators of Bomb. Oh, for sure. I mean, the Tin Man alone. But that's a really good segue to compare to some of these others, right? Uh, Legend, Dark Crystal, Labyrinth, Black Cauldron, Neverending Story, Willow. You know, like they all kind of came out around this time and have kind of a similar-ish tone or look and they were all darker back then i don't know what was going on in the 80s with the reagan revolution or whatever the fuck but we were trying to scare the shit out of kids obviously uh and i was thinking about this and i was thinking like labyrinth of all of those from 1986 the year after this somehow feels like more of a sequel to wizard of oz like in its tone but just as dark and scary so it was just like what's the difference right I mean, I feel like the, these children's movies of the 80s, you're right. They all have a similar, like, through line. So, and I feel like by the time the 1980s rolled around, people were just, like, throwing darts at a wall to see what they could do. And things were, like, obviously trying to appeal to children because marketing to children was a brand new thing in the 80s. And if they could make movies that, like, appealed to adults and to children, plus we had a whole similar group of people making films and TV shows at that time that all had a similar aesthetic, Right. But movies like that have not been made since at all. And I could totally see how you would say that Labyrinth is a little bit more of a sequel to to Wizard of Oz than this one, because it truly is. Like that story alone, the plot alone of Labyrinth is more like The Wizard of Oz than Return to Oz. Well, yeah, especially with um, What's-Her-Face. Jennifer Connelly. Yeah, Jennifer Connelly. But also I think it's because it's a musical. It is a musical. David Bowie, thank you. The tones are different. I, I like that Janet Maslin used the word bleak because it's not necessarily darker or scarier, but it is kind of bleak. It is kind of more, a little bit more adult or grimdark in a way. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like gateway grimdark. Um, yeah. That's also missing some cuteness with there's like nothing endearing in this movie. The scarecrow is fucking nightmare fuel. The everything yeah. in this fucking movie, good and bad, like bombs books is nightmare fuel. There's nothing really endearing about any of these characters, the way they look. And that's something that we said last week, right? That like at every turn, things seem to be frightening, even when they're not supposed to be in these novels. So I think like the, the cutest thing, I mean, like even like Jack Pumpkinhead in this is kind of like scary looking. He's only, the only cute thing is like the way he talks. And even that is not enough to save it. Or I'm wondering if it, 
if it could be something else entirely and that that maybe we're thinking of this in the wrong way or maybe I've just been thinking about it in the wrong way because I was thinking about is Return to Oz really just surrealist children's fantasy like the others or is it something more? And I thought about that, especially after our discussion last week about, you know, everything that Baum was trying to do with like fantasy and Americana mm-hmm. and the differences with the other 80s fantasy f- movies. And I was starting to thinking about genre itself and the realization that Return to Oz and even Baum's larger written work is less surrealist fantasy and more Americana folk horror. Yeah, for sure. It's fucking folk horror, right? Definitely. The entire premise of folk horror is famously, uh, and I think from the documentary you wanted me to watch, quote, we don't go back, right? That's the that's the whole premise behind folk horror is we don't go back as far as uh, beliefs like paganism um, to, to the way things were. This goes into everything from witchcraft to the old gods to the hills have eyes type of situations, right? Mm-hmm. But with Return to Oz, we're going back into the earth where the origin of the power of Oz comes from and all the horror that goes with it. And when you think about that concept with the mystery of the quote unquote old ways seen in more obvious folk horror like Wicker Man or The Witch. It's basically swapping out the horror of the old world in the form of paganism with that of Bombsphere of frontier danger. Yeah. And even, you know, when he was in uh, South Dakota or whatever during the droughts and even the the greater fear that uh, those who came before will come back and tear it all down, i.e. the Native Americans. Last week's discussion about the Gnome King and the Gnomes being kind of a a metaphor for Native Americans, right? Because they owned the land before. That's his whole argument is that he owned all the emeralds. He owned everything. And then everything was kind of stolen from him and constructed into the society. And he was coming back to take it. And they said, fuck you. No, no. And that was the lesson. And I'm like, "Mm, that's an interesting lesson. You know, so some of the politics of bomb has come into this in the form of full core. You know, it's essentially looking at our list, the only gateway folk horror movie on our on our whole top 10 that's true and i've never really thought about this in that way so this is super super interesting especially after the like conversation that we had about bomb and his work and his politics and beliefs and like the 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 time in which that he lived in the america that he experienced i think it's also safe to say that the other movies that we just mentioned like legend dark crystal labyrinth etc right all have some sort of like european quality about about them it's like the destruction of progress and the like that frontier fear and it's basically bombs you know dorothy gale and the children of the goddamn corn yeah <laughs> i mean it is and if you look at it from that like that gnome king perspective right i mean it's like someone from the past like standing in the way of their own Aussian manifest destiny or something like that right i mean it's 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 right there um th- the fact that you know, Baum would make him a villain, the Gnome King in his books, and he would be like, I don't is he a sympathetic villain in this movie, really? And he had things taken from him, right? But Yeah. The Gnome King? Yeah. I mean he it's interesting the way they they do that. It's like they go out of their way and and I don't recall from the books, but they go out of their way to make him seem like a reasonable person. Yeah. You know, he keeps her they could he could kill them all, turn them to stone at any second. Right. Uh, he's trying to become human. So it's a little convoluted by mm-hmm. making them forget Ozma. 
So if he can make all the characters, he could have just turned them to stone at all. I don't, I don't understand what's happening here as far as like the convoluted plot, but he is serving them food. He's talking to them very gently. He's trying to like manipulate them into doing what he wants, but in a very kind way to where they're responsible for their fate and not him, mm-hmm. you know? So it's like, he's trying to be, he's trying to explain it. He doesn't have to explain anything to them. Right. In his mind, he's completely justified. And this was my land. These were my possessions. They were stolen from me and you took them. And this is that's the the consequence. Dorothy even validates him and says, well, Scarecrow didn't know that. Scarecrow didn't know that. Yeah, You chose the wrong person to take your vengeance out on. You know, kind of thing. Exactly. But there is no one else. Right. Uh, he's the representative through the the author, the the writer. You know, he ingests the egg and it's no fault of Dorothy is that he ends up getting killed by, by happenstance. That's true. You know, removes that choice of violence from Dorothy in both the cases with the Wicked Witch of the West and the Gnome King by making it kind of incidental and accidental. It's that true. they die. Dorothy is never culpable in any of this stuff. You know, and so it kind of takes away a little bit of the punch uh, in this movie. Because they spend, with any of the bad guys, they spend the most dialogue with the Gnome King. Only for that to happen. It just seems kind of weird, thematically, tonally. I would agree with that. Um, uh, so we talked about some of like the gateway horror moments that are in The Wizard of Oz. Obviously, this movie has a ton of them as well, right? Things that to children would be kind of frightening. And there were like a lot to me when I was younger. The switching of heads was creepy. Uh, I think the thing that scared me the most in this movie when I was younger was when she crept into the room with all the cabinets of heads and they're sleeping all at the same time. They all wake up at the same time. That's the most tense moment in the entire movie for sure is when they're all sleeping. I, and then when they walk in there, when Mombi's changing heads for the first time and they're all like sort of like averting their gaze to Dorothy and looking like simultaneously, it's really, really scary. And I mean, there's lots of things in this movie that frightened me. Like I, I felt like Jack was kind of scary when I was younger. The faces in the rocks were super scary to me when I was younger. So I feel like this movie frightened me a hell of a lot more than The Wizard of Oz did. But I think that was the point, right? I don't know. I feel like this movie, when it comes to gateway horror, is perfect. I see reviews that are much more modern and contemporary, and and they all seem to be like this is really dark, too dark in the in the beginning, like for a kid to see someone strapped down and about to you know be electrocuted or whatnot. It's like I didn't know that as a kid. I wasn't scared of her being on a bed. No, you know, I was I was bored. I think I fell asleep my first time watching this and I woke up and she was on the goddamn bed <laughs> flying through the air. And I'm like, what the hell just happened? Like I, I fell asleep for like 30 minutes of the movie. It's quite a leap. I missed. Yeah. I missed the, the scariest part of the movie, which is those goddamn wheelers. Uh, Cause oh, I'm yeah. pretty sure that would have scared the shit out of me as a kid. Oh my God. It's like fucking wizard of Oz meets a clockwork orange and shit. And then know? there was like 30 minutes of dialogue with the gnome King and I fell asleep again. Yeah. So it wasn't that I was scared or I was bleak. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of bored and I, it was kind of depressing. And yeah, so I was like sad and a little bored is what it made me when I was a kid. It's kind of like watching The Never Ending Story, except I'm never bored watching that movie. I'm just a little sad. <laughs> so, But mostly sad as an adult. I don't know. I mean, like the the scary parts in Kansas, I think you have to be older to understand exactly what's yeah. going on. I think I was too young um, to see it. I think it was like six, seven. Yeah. 
and I didn't really understand it. And I, Wizard of Oz, super easy to understand as a kid. Exactly. I mean, everything's happening visually. Like you can understand black and white, you know, and pink. And it's just well, like, you know, you can watch the colors in the movie, understand what's going on. And a uh, very, very uh, linear journey, right? And in this, it's just like kind of a lot more random. And, you know, um, the good guys and the bad guys don't look a whole lot different. And, nope, they don't. You know? And so as a kid, it was just kind of confusing and muddied. For me, like I was, it wasn't easy to di- digest. I would have had to think about it a lot more. And I just didn't have time for that when all the other things were coming out that year. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I, I really, really enjoyed this movie when I was younger. I watched it a lot, but you're I was right. three years old when this came out. So, oh, and I was, I was five and six, you know? So, but like, that is the big difference. I mean, you, you call the Wizard of Oz is a, a more linear journey, and it literally is. They're following a yellow brick road. And this is the like upside down version of that because the yellow brick road is in a shambles. They have nothing to follow. It's completely different, right? And when you're a kid, like some of the scariest things are like being torn away from your home or the people that you know and trust. And in this movie, like the child actively wants to get away from it, you know, like. I don't know. It's just two completely different films. But I think like as an adult watching this, like the scarier things are in the beginning. I was, yeah, I was so um, disappointed because I was obsessed by the time we rented this. I was six, seven. Mm -hmm. I was obsessed with Blizzard of Oz. I loved it. Yeah. I watched it every week, probably at least. And I never knew that it existed a sequel. You know, I just thought this was one and done. And we had like a, a family dinner with like family friends or whatever. And other kids came over and they brought it over as something they had rented. This is also how I saw like um, the never ending story Oof. back then. Like the, the, the kid group would watch it while the adults were in there drinking margaritas or whatever the fuck. And so I watched this and I was just like, what? Wizard of Oz has a sequel. And so I was expecting the Wicked Witch and the same actors and mm-hmm. the way the Ten Man looks as simple as that. To get that comfort, to put on that old shoe, and none of it was the same. And it was depressing, and it was dark, and I didn't understand it. I did not have the mental capacity at six or seven to understand why there was a different actress, why it looked so different, why it felt so different. And I ultimately was just, like, confused and sad and then eventually fell asleep because just short-circuited my little kid brain. (laughs) Yeah. And I, I mean, I cannot remember exactly how I felt the first time I watched this, but... You know, already at the time that this movie was released, like I had this idea that I liked darker type things or whatever, and I sort of like latched onto it. And I, I feel like for a period of time, I was super invested in The Wizard of Oz and obsessed with it as well, like between like three and four. And by the time this movie came yeah. out, it switched. And I feel like I watched this movie a lot more often than I did The Wizard of Oz. Yeah, um, I think it's because I just had that that really quick anticipation. I I never seen a trailer. I'd never seen a poster. I'd never seen anything. Oh, so you just found and out about it and then watched it right away. Popped it in, yes. Yeah. So And so it ruined it for me for many, many years. And then uh, I probably watched it again sometime later and liked it a little bit better and understood it more in context. And then, of course, this time, this is probably my third time watching it. Um, I liked it a lot more, you know, and as an adult, it's much more interesting. You know? Oh yeah. There's things to notice. Do you have any fun facts about Return to Oz? Holy shit. Kind of. <laughs> <laughs> so the film received a mention in the Guinness Book World of Records as the sequel that was made the longest period of time after the original. It was released 46 years after The Wizard of Oz from 1939. Well, that's basically like how long you've lived between The Wizard of Oz and Return to Oz. 
That's all that time was. We're going to have words when we're through recording. Just so you fucking know. (laughs) (laughs) But Bambi 2, the great prince of the forest from 2006, broke that record in 2006, releasing 64 years after the original Bambi from 1942. What the fuck is Bambi 2, the great prince of the forest? That's a movie? It's an entry into the Guinness Book World Records. I don't know that it's an actual movie. (laughs) (laughs) There's a Bambi 2. Apparently there is. The Great Prince of the Forest. I don't remember what happened in Bambi 1. You go back and listen to the, the Ring dies. 2 episode. Speaking of trauma. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's my original Artex. <laughs> and that goddamn dinosaur movie. Fuck. Time Before Time? Yes. We really need to All talk the about that All the child death and like mother and ma- like matricide that's going on in these goddamn movies. I'm telling you, like, it's, at some point during Gateway Horror Month, we have to- got to talk about The Land Before Time. Because what a, what a childhood ruiner that American movie is. Tale and all that shit. Don Bluth, what's wrong with him? <sighs> anyway, when Return to Oz was released in June 1985, how did we get out of the 80s with all these goddamn movies? So fucking traumatized. We barely survived. When Return to Oz was released in June 1985, only two members of The Wizard of Oz from 1939's main cast were still alive. Obviously, Ray Bolger, as we mentioned. He played, of course, Scarecrow. And Pat Walsh, who played the lead flying monkey. And Margaret Hamilton... Although she had died in May of 1985. Also, she just missed it. He had just missed it. Yeah. For his work on Apocalypse Now, Merch was the first person ever to receive a credit as the sound designer. Oh, he needs to have all the Oscars then. Hmm. So this was the first film to use the Walt Disney's Pictures logo from 1985 to 2006, which would later receive a fanfare based on When You Wish Upon a Star, composed by John Debney, with The Black Cauldron. Oh, Mm-hmm. That logo did last for a long time, didn't it? It did. Two thousand and six, the same year that Bambi Two was released. Yes. Did, of- <laughs> did Bambi Two have the new logo? I guess. <laughs> I haven't seen the Black Cold in a long time either. Killed all the records. The Ruby Slippers were created by MGM specifically for the nineteen thirty nine film to replace the Silver Shoes. Of the original stories, and as the slippers remain MGM's intellectual property, a fee was paid. I'm sure it was hefty. This one's going to be for Halloween. Be the Gnome King with those fucking ruby slippers on. I, like the way that Nicole Williamson played that, if that was him, yeah. I guess. Like the way that he like, oh look, and he like pulls his. Yeah, when he had the shoes, he he was Nicole Williamson. Yeah. Okay, well he's just a little too fucking precious in that moment <laughs> for my taste because he's all pointing them and he's like, look at my ruby slippers, and I was just like, <laughs> oh my god, did I feel a little like homoness when I was like a child watching this because he's so precious when he's like, look at them, Dorothy. Basically written by Sapphire. <laughs> Based on the novel Push. <laughs> okay. Uh, for Bellina, a mechanical chicken was used for certain scenes, at times behaving so similarly to the real uh, to a real chicken that the crew in the screening room and on set were unable to tell the difference. So when I was watching this movie, I felt so strongly in my body that like practical effects and in-camera work is seriously the best thing it ever. Is. Like I, I, I know that computers can do a lot of amazing things, but like that chicken, TikTok, some of the things in this movie, I was just like, my good lord, yeah. you know, like practical effects. Can we get back to them, please? 100%. I feel like people had more fun. Yeah, and it, they look so good. Well, fun maybe not be the right word because we have some fun facts coming up. 
about that. Okay. Gymnast Michael Sundin stood upside down with legs bent and backwards inside TikTok's body in order to move the legs. At first, he could only do 15 minutes at a time. But by the end of production, they got up to one hour. Okay, that's horrible. Yes. So it wasn't, you know, like some small or little little person in there. It was literally like a full-grown man who could bend himself in half. And in order to make the walk move look right uh-huh. um, that way, for him to fit inside there, he had to walk backwards for, for TikTok to walk forwards. Oh, okay. So And they said like, whenever watch, they would but... open that thing to give him a break or let him stand up or to give him a drink, it would be like a rush of hot air coming out of there. Oh, my God. Like crazy. The sacrifices that people did for these amazing effects. Mm-hmm. Like, I know it's bad. Fun for everyone to watch. You know what I mean? But, like, <laughs> terrible for everybody who was doing it. Jeez. So the temperature at Salisbury Plain during filming was described as, um, by Melansky as freezing. Saying of Frieza Balk that, quote, she would cry from the cold, from the pain of the cold. But she would never complain. The original cameraman, Freddie Francis, quit after shooting the Kansas scenes due to impatience with merch. We already discussed all that, but this yeah. is the original. This is the official fun fact. I mean, I good for her though. Like being a trooper, mm-hmm. I do like Frusia Bach. I I wish that I could see her in more things. I wish that she had a little bit more of a prolific like filmography. For some reason, I always remember her being in Empire Records, but she's not. Mm. You know. And so, like, I don't know. I, th- I think I just want more from her. No, it's so. it's her coworker, Robin Tooney or whatever. That's right. That's right. It's the other witch in that movie. <laughs> the good witch. Sinead O'Reilly is the good witch. It's the Glenda. Glenda is an Empire record. That's where she was. <laughs> she, she wasn't in Oz. She went to go work in Music Town. <laughs> Welcome to Music Town. May I service you? Mm-hmm. So when Dorothy is in the hospital in Kansas, she is kept in room 31 by Nurse Wilson, of course, Mombi. Later, when Dorothy is in Oz, Mombi's original head is kept in cabinet 31. My God, I'm telling you that this movie, everything lines up with her real life. Her dream life and her real life line up like more seamlessly than in the original Wizard of Oz. Seamlessly through the looking glass, Alice. That's, That's right. Thievery. is also present in this movie. For my last one, cartoonist Tim Burton has acknowledged that Jack Pumpkinhead is his inspiration for the iconic character Jack Skellington in The Nightmare Before Christmas from 1993. Yes! I feel so fucking justified right now. Yeah, For thinking this. I mean, like, it's obvious. Yeah, he wouldn't have based it on a fucking Muppet. It was from this nightmare fuel that was illustrated back in 1900. Oh my good lord. I was just like, wow. That is <laughs> the same thing. I was like, when Jack Pumpkinhead died, he went to go live in Halloween Town, like fully. Uh, those were fun facts, and I feel really happy about a lot of them, but sad for that man in that TikTok thing. I'm sad for saying that, like, practical effects are good. I should know. I'm, this is like the first time we've talked about people, like, being put to the test or, like, nearly dying to, like, pull something off and, and film. That's terrible. But, um, <laughs> We have some questions to ask about Return to Oz. Uh, is Return to Oz a horror movie? Uh, it is gateway folk horror. Yes. So, so horror. I mean, yeah. I mean, so horror adjacent, clearly. Yeah. Like, like, like any gateway horror would be. But I feel like this movie 
is is way more horror than the wizard of oz like obviously i think it was intended to be so um i think these people even knew that it wasn't going to appeal to every single child to watch it right it's 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 dark it's drab it's boring right but it's clearly a horror movie like way scarier than a lot of a lot of other children's movies. Yeah, and less forgiving. Like I said, there's there's less adorableness in the Muppetry in this movie mm-hmm. as breaks. There's less um breaths. There's breaths in the plot and the good guys and stuff, but there's no little cute Muppety dog that's like opening its jaw at ninety degree angles or whatever the fuck. That's right. There's no cute little yeah. worm like inviting you to come inside and meet the misses like yeah. you would in Labyrinth, you know? Like there is no there is no break. It really is just scary and sad. And bleak. And bleak all the way through it. So were you scared while watching Return to Oz? Mm, no. And I wasn't when I was a kid the first time. And then I watched it again too late. So I can't say that I was scared ever watching this movie, really. Disturbed. I probably was disturbed. I was, I mean, I remember being scared when I was a kid. Um, I can't, I can't imagine if I had stayed awake or if I'd watched it like one or two years later, if I was a little bit older. Yeah. It would scare the shit out of me for sure. I was, I mean, so the first time I watched this movie, I was kind of terrified by the heads. Like the heads really, really fucking scared me. And it wasn't the heads when they were on her body or the fact that she could change them. It was the heads when they were in the cabinets. And I was just like, my God, yeah, like just frightening how they were doing things in unison and seemed to share a brain on screen, but not in the plot. You know, like maybe she forgot she had a different head on. I'm like, that's dumb. They all seem to be completely connected. So, but it's, it's just frightening as an adult. I wasn't really scared. Yeah. Now that I think about it, I might've been actually four or five years old. (laughs) The first time I saw this. So, I mean, like too young, (laughs) probably, but I mean, like who's to say though, I mean, like with a name like Disney attached to it, you feel like parents would be trusting of that brand by that point. They already showed us the 1939 one that scared the shit out of us. That's true. Well, lots of things scared me when I was a kid and still do today but this movie did not scare me as an adult so I didn't even feel tense really probably because I knew everything that was going to happen I felt some tension in the, the glass case like we said like getting the getting the, the life potion and oh yeah, yeah knocking it over and waking that head up and she screeches oh yeah the way she says yeah. Dorothy Gale Dorothy Gale <laughs> yeah. yeah like that was definitely horror mm-hmm. because it's like guttural. It's not even like she's saying it properly. Like a human would. No, she sounds like a, it's very kind of pan's labyrinth kind of very, situation. very, very. I mean, in that moment when she, it's so quiet and then she knocks the bottle over and it makes that tink sound. It's like an alarm. And the, yeah. The eyes open. And I was just like, Fuck. and then every fucking <laughs> head wakes up and you're just like, bitch run. Yeah. <laughs> Get out there right now. Yeah. Uh, out of five stars, what did you rate Return to Oz? I give it a three star. That's respectable. It is. Although, you know, I, I, I have actually toyed with bringing it up to a three and a half. Because the more I think about it, you know, the more I appreciate it. Especially after doing like the research and everything that was tried to do. I gave it three and a half stars. And that was not my original intention. I was going to give it higher than that. But I was just like, all right. Let me stop and think about this as an adult and try to like stop jerking off my nostalgia boner a little bit because watching this movie, I was filled with nostalgia from like the minute it started, just like watching the wizard of Oz the week before I had seen this movie so many times that I knew all the cues, right? Yeah. Like I knew the music cues. I knew the characters. I knew when they were coming. I, I knew 
large chunks of dialogue from this movie. I'd seen it so many times. And I was just like, all right. But as an adult watching this, and I assume I felt the same way as a child, sometimes maybe, there's some pacing problems, right? Obviously. It's not exciting from start to finish. It doesn't hold my attention the same way that The Wizard of Oz does. So I feel like that, you know, lowers its star rating just a little bit. I would still rewatch this movie a lot. And I... I feel like I would rewatch this movie more than I would The Wizard of Oz. It's it's a strange thing. It's hard to articulate for me. You know, it's it's like it's it's got momentum. Yeah. But it's 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 like it's got a, a pacing problem. Too. For sure. Definitely. Uh and finally, and I don't know why, who's the hottest guy in return to Oz? <laughs> I don't know there's an answer to this question. It's not really. The scarecrow is the scariest thing in this movie to me. Yeah. His fucking face. Oh my God. But he's not hot. Uh, it's not the Gnome King. Um, there's no other guys in it. I guess Uncle Uncle Henry. Yeah. But yeah, where are those sexy farm hands when you need them? Exactly. I guess they had to let them all go. Yeah, they had nothing. I don't know. There's no real answer to this question because like most of the men are stoned through most of the movie. And then when they're alive, we don't really see them all that much. You said stoned. (laughs) (laughs) I kind of wish I was stoned watching this movie. I'm going to rewatch it again and take some gummies just to see how I feel. Then my stars will be like five, five stars. Yeah, I think that just about wraps up our conversation on Return to Oz. Uh, As always, we want to know what you think about this movie and our conversation about it. Find us on social media at The Film Flamers on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, threads. You can email us at tiredqueens at filmflamers.com or call our hotline at 972-666-7733. Why don't you tinker with my head? <laughs> Collection. I don't know. Peacock! Suck my egg. I don't know. <laughs> I promise it's not poison. Go suck an egg, Gnome King. <laughs> suck my egg, Gnome King. <laughs> what cute shoes. <laughs> Uh, that wraps up our content on Gateway Horror for the main feed, but over on patreon.com slash the film flamers, you could find a poll. You could find a poll. That's right. Similar to the poll that we gave people last November to vote on. Because we have more gateway content to talk about over on Patreon. Go look at that list. Tell us the movie you want to talk about. Join the family. And we're going to read your name on the next Shooting the Flames. Uh, we also like to read reviews on Shooting the Flames, so head over to Apple Podcasts or iTunes or really anywhere you can leave us a review, and we will read that on Shooting the Flames. Also, if you go to filmflamers.com, you can find our merch store. We have plenty of options, and the holidays are coming up, so go and get something for that film flamer in your life. <laughs> we know there's at least one or two. <laughs> Hundred. <laughs> Including yourself. That's right, me. Well, Chris, I think it's time for us to head off and have some limestone cake and hot melted sulfur where the fuck they were eating, right? And lay on a chase long. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a chase gump. 
and have some sweet, sweet dreams. dreams. Fucking this. Like the the ex- existential problematic weirdness of that like life powder. Mm-hmm. That's right. It doesn't do wonders for these people. Like, it's like that, that robot in um, Rick and Morty where it's just like, what is my purpose? And it's like, you pass butter. <laughs> oh my god. Because <laughs> <laughs> that, that Gump is like, this life is weirder than my previous life. And just to even have that kind of knowledge is bad. <laughs> fucked. It's all fucked. The 80s were fucked. 